Hello and welcome to The Works. I'm Ben Peltier. And I'm Ben Che. In today's show, photography has taken Nick Danzinger from palaces to hovels. It's also taken him to places the rest of us might only dream or have nightmares of visiting. He'll be talking to us about his experience in photographing North Korea. And from the largely inaccessible environment of that country, we'll also be featuring a group of musicians who have made their reputation largely through the hugely accessible environment of the Internet. They are the Piano Guys. But first, every year the Hong Kong Arts Development Awards recognize the achievements of Hong Kong-based cultural practitioners in arts criticism, dance, drama, media arts, music, visual arts, and film. But the awards don't happen without their fair share of criticism. In 2013, there were allegations of a conflict of interest between the winner of the Arts Criticism Prize and some of the judging panel. This year, the controversy is about what should happen when judges think there just isn't work of sufficient quality to deserve an award. On April 12th, film critic Born Lowe, one of five panel members judging the film sector in this year's Artist of the Year Award, published an open letter in Mingpao newspaper, asking film director Dante Lam to turn down the award. Nominations for Artist of the Year Awards opened last September. Assessment began in January. On January 28th, five film panelists, including Lowe, were invited by the Arts Development Council to assess six nominated directors. Directors Dante Lam, Fruit Chan, and Ivy Ho got through to the second round. In this round, three of the four voting members abstained and one voted for Fruit Chan. The chair of the panel did not vote. But their choice was overridden. In early March, they were informed that the chief adjudication panel, whose role is to finalize and endorse the assessment results, had decided to give the award to Dante Lam, who had received the highest number of votes in the first round. On March 25th, the assessment panel met again. Their assessment had not changed. They recommended that an award not be handed out. Still, the chief adjudication panel insisted the award should go to Lam. The Tuesday after Lowe's open letter was published, all four voting members of the panel signed a statement expressing regret and indignation over the chief adjudication panel's vulgar override of the assessment panel's decision based on professional judgment. They said that they'd resign immediately if the award was to be given to Lamb. The Arts Development Council responded by expressing regret that the panel members had made the whole thing public and insisted that the chief adjudication panel had the final say. 現在我就覺得因為其實件事都是牽涉到我們評審的過程裡面譬如我們的分數、我們曾經討論過的東西得到這個獎和你自己再考慮一下是否真的想抬拿這個獎的意思我以後不會幫你發局做事但是我覺得到頭來我們都是希望那個獎好的這個獎的認受性有一個好清楚的程序才可以做到
。如果你咁粗係咁亂班咧，都同你即係害咗個獎項。如果大眾可能佢唔係好關心電影藝術啊，唔係好關心藝術嘅時候，佢可能覺得依件事好似覺得係誒雞毛蒜皮嘅嘢。咁但係其實正正呢、這個呢、這個先係最危險嘅地方，而就係咁樣，即係好似見解。見怪不怪，或者温水煮蛙咁，香港就係咁樣，即係一係不如係。Kenneth Ip, better known as critic, director, and screenwriter Xu Kei, has several times been a member of the assessment panel for the film award. He has long had reservations about the legitimacy of the Artist of the Year awards. He says that what happened to the judges this year was unusual and unfair. 相對上有影響力，可能就真係陳果。嘅紅 van 係比較有影響力啦，但係呢個有影響力都係相對上嚇。你話係因為紅紅 van， 所以引發一連串嘅類似嘅作品，或者引發好大嘅討論，或者社會上有好大嘅迴響。誒、嗯、有冇咧？成個獎項嘅設立，佢到底點樣要設立一個咁嘅獎項咧？設立呢個獎項嘅時候，又從來唔從嗰個實質去考慮，從嗰個影響力去考慮。如果你話去推廣，其實好似而家咁嘅事件係適得其反，佢嘅摧毀力仲大過佢嘅推廣力。Jude Choi is a former chair of the Arts Development Council's Arts Education Group. She is a post-80s art educator who is very familiar with the council's bureaucratic structure. During her term, Jure actively tried to open up the voting for the council's representatives of different art interests. Jure said this is not the first time the ADC has overridden its own established rules. Largely by its own choice, North Korea is one of the world's most isolated countries, also facing sanctions from the United States, most of Europe, and the United Nations. Not many foreigners get in, and not many North Koreans get out, even briefly. Two people who did get in and out, with the help of the British Council, are photographer Nick Danziger and writer Rory McLean. They visited in August 2013, and at the Hong Kong Art Center until the 28th of April, you can see 81 color photographs from that trip in Above the Line, People and Places in the DPRK. From impoverished areas of India through war zones in Afghanistan to the African outback, British photographer and writer Nick Danziger has focused his cameras on people and their environment. He began by studying fine art, but increasingly, photography took precedence. As in his third book, the 2001 The British, his subjects range from those in the corridors of power to the often disenfranchised and disadvantaged, whose lives they affect or sometimes blight through war or politics. In 2004, Nick received a World Press Photo First Prize for his image, taken as part of a study of a prime minister at war, showing British leader Tony Blair as the mirror image of US President George W. Bush. I think above all, the thing that now that really I'm very passionate about is telling stories through photography. Most of my work revolves around how people live, and my passion is also 
in a sense, giving a voice to those people who don't often get the opportunity to, we don't see them, we don't hear from them. And I think North Korea was particularly special for me because some people would describe it as a kind of isolated state. Uh, we know it's very difficult to, to get to and to travel through. And so for me, North Korea, once I had this permission, um, I thought, as best as I can, let's see how people live on a daily basis. Let's see how, not just how they live in the capital city, because across the world, many capital cities are very different from the countryside. You know, North Korea is, is unquestionably one of the more difficult to be diplomatic places that I've worked in. It's true that I was always accompanied by, by two people. I felt often that they didn't quite understand the type of work that interests me, how I want to photograph people. But uh, what I have to say very clearly was that it was rare on the occasions that they would say, you can't photograph that. And they often were unhappy about what I photographed. And equally, which comes as a, a great surprise to, to many people, they never checked any of my pictures. One of the images I particularly like also because I really struggled to be able to photograph in someone's home. And, and this is actually in the countryside, the grandfather with his grandchildren. Obviously for me what was interesting was the portraits of the founder of the DPRK and his son, the two leaders, must always be in your living room. They must be hung above head height so that you're always looking up at the leaders. Nick Danziger's photographic work has taken him from palaces to slums. Among the disadvantaged, he sees much that affects him emotionally. Among the elite, he encounters a different set of challenges. But whether he is photographing rich or poor, the key is to get as much access as possible, even to establish a kind of intimacy. And so it's become awkward for me at times uh, because I'm party to important discussions, not to say state secrets, but I hear things that I cannot subsequently talk about. My philosophy now is take the pictures and I'm deaf to what I hear because that's how I get a lot of access and the access is built up around trust. It's been very rare in my lifetime, whether it's been in a war zone, a civil war or, or areas of great difficulty, that I don't take a picture. Um, it has happened uh, because I've never wanted that image to be reproduced again. I didn't want to have it in camera, but I have taken very, very sensitive images, for example, in prisons. Um, and some of those images I've never allowed to be published. And I think it's very important because sometimes I'm, I'm almost in tears. I, I have cried behind the camera because I see things that I find very disturbing. But I do feel, however difficult, I should take the picture. And then it's a question of, well, I can then decide, should it ever be published or not? Welcome back. Since studying illustration, Young Hok Tak has worked in a design house, advertising agency, and publication company. He has described his own work as being in a wild beast style, and he adds that among his favorite painters are the Fovis, the school of artists famously named after wild beasts. For a year, from last December, the Open Print Shop is organizing a series of five pop-up exhibitions called Pop-Up Press at different Hong Kong locations to introduce the art of printmaking to the public. Young Hok Tak is one of the artists invited to take part. It's not easy for Hong Kong's contemporary illustrators to make a living by just selling their works. 
Often, what keeps them going is little more than their enthusiasm and determination. Yuan Hoktak is one of many who has managed to keep his passion alive on this basis. But his confidence and reputation did receive a boost when his first personal graphic novel, How Blue Was My Valley, was published in 2002. It received a lot of positive feedback, not because people saw his characters as cute or beautiful, but because they thought of them as ugly and somewhat quirky. As divisive as the yeast spread Marmite, Yuan Hok Tak's unique characters arouse extremes of feeling. People tend to either love or hate them. But for him, nothing is 100% ugly or 100% beautiful. He believes there's an inherent beauty in the oddity of his drawings that not everyone will get, just as some don't or won't appreciate works like those of the Fauvist painters. Last month, Yang took part in a joint three-day pop-up exhibition co-organized by the London-based No Brow Press and the Hong Kong Open Print Shop to promote his new book, Psychic Spring Dreams. He says it's harder to turn his comic drawings into prints than people might think. For him, from drafting ideas through bringing elements together as one image to the final color printing, every step demands care and caution. After working as a comic artist and illustrator for more than a decade, Yang still doubts that drawing comics alone will ever allow him to make a decent living. However, the way he sees it, each illustrator is a necessary part of the whole, and it takes the efforts of every single artist to create the unique identity of Hong Kong comics. 
The Piano Guys consists of four members, a pianist, a cellist, a music producer, and just as importantly, a videographer. It's important because they built up their reputation not just through the music, but also through making music videos and posting them on social media. Their YouTube channel has more than half a billion video views and over three million subscribers. The Piano Guys say they want to play classically influenced instrumental music, showcase incredible locations, and produce videos that inspire and uplift. Last Saturday, they gave a live performance in Hong Kong, and the works caught up with them at rehearsal. My name is Al Vanderbeek, and I'm the music producer songwriter of the Piano Guys. I'm John Schmidt. I am the pianist of the Piano Guys. Stephen Sharp Nelson. I'm the cello dude of the Piano Guys. And I'm Paul Anderson, the video producer and business guy. The success of the Piano Guys began with a piano shop owned by Paul Anderson in St. George, Utah. He was looking for a way to promote his store's pianos through social media. In 2007, a severe back injury left him largely confined to bed for six months. During that time, he began to think more and more about creating a YouTube channel and uploading self-made music videos in the hope they'd go viral. He thought it could become a big thing. People around him thought he was crazy. I remember uh, I had a hurt back laying in bed and I was in pain and I was watching YouTube videos and came across a video they did. And it just energized me and got me out of bed, got me excited about uh, just living life again and going, pushing forward. And so that's why I, I had a strong passion. It's like a happy accident. And we really feel like that, that happened with us. All of a sudden, we were at this moment in history where uh, YouTube was young and people were starting to share videos on Facebook and uh, our videos were some of the first videos ever shared on social media. So it was kind of like being at the right place at the right time. We believe there's purpose in just about everything. You know, no, we don't believe in coincidences. I mean, there's just been way too many coincidences to call it happenstance of the piano guys. I mean, this story is a miracle. One key element of their success is that the videos are shot in beautiful or spectacular locations. Everything you see is real. They are not produced in front of a green screen. We want to take the piano and the cello out of the symphony hall, you know, the concert hall where, you, where you're used to seeing it, and put them in uh, outside in nature, you know, in all these crazy places. You know, the earth has so many beautiful backgrounds. The hardest one is the piano. Yeah, that's the hardest <laughs> one. Yeah, John, the hardest one is the piano. <laughs> it is very difficult <laughs> taking a piano and putting it on a thousand foot cliff. It is difficult. And it's a real grand piano every time. The part of the signature sound of the piano guys is we have three components. There's the piano, of course. There's the vocal textures that Al creates. He uses his voice as an instrument. And often that's not heard as well, but the sort of work intensive instrument of the piano guys that often occupies most of the tracks is the 21 different cellos that I have. They all have personalities, so we give them all names. And one of them, no kidding, 
we gave a name to four years ago. His name is Bruce Lee. He's the coolest electric cello ever. They say that the most important thing about their success is that it allows them to bring their music to more people. But they emphasize that they are still the same people they were, four happy middle-aged dads with 16 kids in total between them. In terms of balancing work and family, they describe themselves as being like plate spinners in circuses, trying to keep all the plates spinning without any falling to the ground. We love, love, love being musicians, but we love being dads even more, and we love being committed husbands to our spouses. I think it helps so, our music to be That's where we draw our inspiration and yeah, our joy to from. To be dads certainly. and to be, you know, really, you know, good husbands. I think it makes our music better. And if we were to neglect those things, our music would suffer. We try not to let all this other stuff get to us, and we, we remind each other what's most important. And that's us staying true to our beliefs and staying true to what we feel is our calling in life. Each has his own area of expertise, which, combined, allows them full control of the music, recording, and video production. They say that between them, they can take care of pretty much everything. But the most important thing is the fun they have working together. It's really fun. These guys are just really great to collaborate with. I think it's a collaboration that's... Uh, very unusual, um, I think it's special, and we all could feel that it was going to be something special. 